If you are visiting with us today and you look across and see the title of the message, it's not a very glamorous title, is it, as we think about uh, our topic before us today. But we are continuing through a series of the Gospel of Matthew, and we happen to be in the 18th chapter, and I'm picking up there where we left off with several weeks before Holy Week. And so let me read Matthew chapter 18, and we're going to spend some more time in 1 Corinthians 5 in just a moment. But Matthew 18, beginning at verse 15, uh, verse 17, it speaks about this third stage of what many people refer to as church discipline. It says, and if he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. But if he refuses even to hear the church, let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. Assuredly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Let's pray. Our gracious Father, as we come to this important passage that Jesus is teaching His disciples and us, we pray that we would take heed to the things that You have commanded Your church to obey. We pray that Your Spirit would be poured out upon us now and anoint the preaching of Your Word, that we would receive it into our hearts with gladness, and that You would teach us wonderful things from Your law. We're thankful for the instruction that You give, knowing that the chastening of the Lord is for our good, and even evidence that we are true sons of the Most High. And We're thankful for treating us with great care and love, and we pray that you would bless this time together to be rich and be fruitful for the life of this ministry, but most of all, to glorify our God in heaven, in whose name we pray, amen. You may be seated. The church is a glorious body, united to our glorious head, Christ. It's a very good thing. It's very positive. It's a very delightful thing and a tremendous privilege to be a part of the kingdom of God and in the church. The church is more than just an organization. It's more than a, a social club. It's more than something you just join because you want to. It's a covenant community of believers that is really transcendent beyond this world. The church is not of this world. While the church is in this world, it is not of this world. Just like Jesus' kingdom is not of this world, but it is working its way out here upon the earth. But Christians have been taken out of the kingdom of darkness and placed in the glorious kingdom of Christ. And the way of life for the Christian and for the church, is characteristically different than the world. It is a way of being different in terms of our humanity. We are a different humanity. We are being renewed in the image of God. You are a new creature. Behold, all things are old and passed away, and you have become new in Christ. So it's a different way of living, a different way of thinking, a different way of being human. Our weapons are different. They're spiritual. 
Our ways are different. We are the way of love and peace and humility and holiness. For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but peace, love, and joy in the Holy Spirit, the Apostle would say. Our character is different. We see the character delineated out in the Beatitudes from Matthew chapter 5 or Galatians 5 and the fruit of the Spirit. The church is the expression here on the earth of God's kingdom here. When we think of God's kingdom, it's His reign, His rule. And everything about the church and the kingdom of God is different than the kingdoms of this world. But the character of the church which makes this place so glorious and so joyful and, and where there's singing and, and where there's rejoicing in what good things God is doing in this world and even enjoying the good of His creation, those things must be maintained. And that's why we're here in Matthew chapter 18 as we're making our pilgrimage through the Gospel of Matthew. And why Christ thought it important to not only give this as a suggestion, but to give it as a command to the church. And while church discipline is an unpleasant activity, it is important and it is necessary for the church. It is a command of Christ and we must be faithful to obey all those things whatsoever He has commanded us. It carries with it salvific implications because the keys of the kingdom are wielded. And it acts in correspondence with heaven itself in the binding and the loosing. When a church takes a position to follow Christ in church discipline, there seems to always be those within the pale of that body who will resist it. That's a pretty common pattern and characteristic. They become untrusting of the church leadership. And they themselves can become problematic and further disturbing the unity of the body. So it's important to follow Christ in what He is teaching us. And not allow our emotions to drive our heart, but rather let our faithfulness to God's Word drive us. So this morning I'm picking up on that passage where we left off in Matthew 18, and to help us grasp this topic a bit more and to help us when we should come into those occasions where we have to practice this as a body, that we can be unified in understanding of this a bit more. And thankfully, we don't have any uh, cases before us or imminent uh, cases that are outstanding that you know of, that, that we are right in the middle of this. But to help us grasp this, I want to look at four New Testament passages where church discipline takes place so that we can learn from those passages the kinds of sins for which people are excommunicated out of the church. Four cases that help us to understand the kinds of sins for which people are excommunicated out of the church. And this morning we're going to look at just one of those passages and then perhaps next week or the week after, when we pick back up, we'll look at maybe a couple more. This morning I want us to look at 1 Corinthians 5 particularly, and I'm going to read that chapter in its totality, 
as we consider the case of gross behavioral sins. I'll begin reading at verse 1. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and such sexual immorality as is not even named among the Gentiles, that a man has his father's wife. And you are puffed up, and have not rather mourned that he who has done this deed might be taken away from among you. For I indeed, as absent in body, but present in spirit, have already judged as though I were present him who has so done this deed. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you are gathered together along with my spirit, with the power of the Lord Jesus Christ, deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus Your glorying is not good. Do you know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Therefore, purge out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, since you are truly unleavened. For indeed, Christ our Passover was sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my epistle not to keep company with sexually immoral people, yet I certainly do not mean with the sexually immoral people of this world, or with the covetous, or extortioners, or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I have written to you not to keep company with anyone named a brother who is sexually immoral, or covetous, or an idolater, or a reviler, or drunkard, or an extortioner, not to even eat with such a person. For what have I to do with judging those who are outside? Do you not judge those who are inside? But those who are outside, God judges. Therefore, put away from yourselves the evil person. When we consider this passage, this is a weighty passage Of course, Paul is speaking to, writing to the church of Corinth, which was riddled with so many factions and divisions and schisms. Throughout the entire epistle, he's addressing all kinds of divisions within the body of Corinth. A church should never be like the church of Corinth. And yet here was Paul addressing all this carnal worldliness that has crept in. And here we see a very difficult situation that they were not addressing. So first of all, Paul addresses a known sin in this church. Now I'd like to give this message in seven brief points, and that's the first one. Paul addresses a known sin in the church. Verses 1 and 2. The sin was such of a gross immoral nature, and it was also broadly known within the church body. It was the kind of sin that Scripture addresses in the chapter of being one of gross behavioral conduct that warrants excommunication and for the church to exercise discipline like this. But specific to the case at hand that Paul is addressing is a case of corrupt immoral behavior, and he spells that out in verse 1. But Paul also groups 
other specific infractions here along with that kind of gross immoral behavior. He goes on in verse 11, and he mentions here that he wrote to them in a previous epistle. It's an epistle we no longer have with us, and God saw fit not to include that in the canon, but we do know from the way that Paul writes, he had written to the Corinthian church before. And he told them, and now he's reiterating, there are other kinds of sins that he's grouping this along with. First of all, in verse 11, there's those who are immoral. Or those who are covetous. covetous. You see, the first illustration of church discipline in Acts chapter 5, with Ananias and Sapphira, over that very sin of covetousness. Number three, being an idolater. Now, we all have problems with idolatry, do we not? As John Calvin says, the human heart is a constant idol manufacturer. And we all struggle with this. But if it's a characteristic issue in our life, it's worthy of excommunication. One of the symptoms of an idolater is one who loses interest and the commitment in the worship of God on the Lord's Day with His people. When you begin seeing that trending, there's idolatry in the life. Number four is a reviler. And a reviler is someone who attacks others with their speech or even with their letters. Number five is a drunkard, and that's being under the influence of another. Unbridled, unrestrained, undisciplined, and influenced. Extortioner, who's a Someone that does not deal honestly or truthfully in order to get gain. And so Paul mentions not an exclusive list or an exhaustive list, I should say, uh, but he mentions these along with this very specific sin that he's addressing in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 because these are all examples of the kinds of sin in which excommunication should be exercised on someone that is not repentant. But rather than doing that, verse 2 says that they didn't do it, they allowed it. They were even puffed up and they were not doing anything about it. They openly knew of this sin to the extent that the Apostle Paul, who was away from them, had even heard about this. So this had been going on for a while and the entire body knew what was going on and they, they weren't doing anything about it. Paul addresses this tolerance of theirs as pride. And he rebukes them for being puffed up about this. Pride is more concerned with self than it is with the honor of Christ. Pride often avoids doing what is right for whatever reason that may come. Whether it's avoiding the unpleasantness of dealing with the issue. Whether it's thinking tolerance is a virtue, or whether it's merely not caring enough to really do anything about it, it all amounts to being puffed up and proud, prideful. I'm caring more about my things than God's things. But he says, not only are they puffed up, they should have rather mourned. See, true repentance as Paul would then write in his second epistle uh, to the Corinthian church, there's a difference between a worldly sorrow 
and a godly repentance. And a godly repentance is truly sorrowful. This gets back or echoes back to the beatitude, blessed are those who mourn. And they should have mourned. He's echoing the language here of that beatitude, that they will be comforted who mourn. Mourning there in the beatitude is meaning mourning over sin. Being sorrowful for sin. Rather than mourning, they actually gloried. Your glorying is not good, he would say in verse 6. They were allowing the sinner to remain and the sin to remain among the body there. And because of that kind of tolerance and allowance, which then spreads with a spirit throughout the whole body, Paul is addressing chapter after chapter after chapter problems within the church that are going unchecked and not being brought to repentance. Now church discipline is not a practice that is commonly exercised in churches today. And it's one of the reasons the church is in dire straits today. Sure, it's unpleasant for the short term. And it's just easier to overlook it for the moment. But like an undisciplined child in the early years who will grow up to be a rebel, so goes an undisciplined church that in the long term will bring much heartache. So as Paul begins to address the situation of a known sin that's going unchecked where they are proud and they are puffed up and they're not rather mourning, he then turns in the second point this morning is rather than tolerating the sinner to continue his present state, the church should have judged and disciplined the sinner out of the church. That sounds harsh, doesn't it? it sounds harsh to our, our soft, emotional, tender ears. But how harsh was it nailing the God of heaven to the cross and spat upon, beard being plucked out, spear in his side, in agony because of your sin and mine. You have to think about it in terms of the whole. And you have to think about it the way Christ Himself thinks about it. Paul says, no, the church must judge a righteous judgment here. This is not a suggestion. It's not an option. It's not behind door number one, two, or three. This is something the church must do. He says in verse 3 that he's already judged the matter from a distance. And Christ requires us to judge sin and the sinners and to purge the church of this cancerous problem. Because the church had allowed these kinds of things like the church of Corinth was doing, Christ then tells the Apostle John to pick up your pen and I want you to write 
And Christ writes these letters to churches of Revelation 2 and Revelation 3, some of which He's giving them grave warning because they are tolerating sins within the church. And He says, if you fail to deal with this and judge yourselves in this manner, the Lord of the church will come and remove the lampstand and put out the light to the extent that they will cease being a church altogether. Later in this book, in chapter 11, God actually was having to step in and judge the church themselves because of the great disunity that the Corinthians were bringing to the Lord's table. And as they were divisive, and they had their little factions, and their little shunning within the body that was unholy, and within all these little things that were going on within the body, God judged people specifically with sickness and death in the church of Corinth. Ananias and Sapphira was not the only church discipline unto death. We see in 1 Corinthians in chapter 11, this was going on where God actually had to step in Himself because the church was not doing the deal. And the activity was highlighted around the Lord's table where God chastens some with sickness and death because of their disunity and factious spirit in the body. And they were bringing that to the Lord's table, which is a sacrament of the unity of the body of Christ with Him. So Paul wrote the church in that very passage. And he says, for if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. And he's implying of God. But when we are judged, we are chastened by the Lord that we may not be condemned with the world. The end of the passage in chapter 5, we are required to judge those within the church. He says, do, not, do, do you not even judge those within the church? He's going to commend in the next chapter where brothers are going with, to brothers to court and airing out their dirty laundry in the civil magistrate court, that he says, can you not even take those things and judge among yourselves? Do you not know that even these civil infractions can be judged by the church? Don't you know that you will even judge angels at some point in God's program? You're going to have to judge, but judge righteously. And that's what Matthew 18 is informing us to do. That's what Paul is instructing us to do in 1 Corinthians 5, and 1 Corinthians 11, and 1 Corinthians 6. We're required to judge those within the church. Now those outside the church, that's God's business. Those in here, He has delegated authority for us to bind and to loose according to the actions in heaven. So it's imperative that the church judge wickedness and not tolerate the wickedness and the sin within the body of Christ. Here we're dealing with the kind of wickedness that surrounds behavioral conduct. And the fact that the sin was commonly known and no one was arguing against the facts demonstrates that the situation already had two or three witnesses. This is one of those cases that Jay Adams in his book on church discipline says, you don't do stage one until you go right to stage three because it was openly known, it was being tolerated, the sin was a such um, the, the, a heinous sin that it needs to be purged immediately out of the church. 
And that brings us to the third point. The manner in which the person is excommunicated out of the church is given in verse 4. It's in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, it says, when you are gathered together. There's a corporateness involved in the church as a body, but in the name of Jesus Christ, and it says at the end of verse 4, with the power of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is with His authority that this takes place. What Paul was doing is he was exhorting the church to exercise the keys of the kingdom. To bind this man in his sins by making the judgment, calling him to repentance, and putting him out of the church until he has demonstrated fruit that is meat for that repentance. By doing so, the church would simply be catching up with what God had already decreed. We'd covered that the last time about this very unique grammatical construction. Whatever you bind on earth will have already been bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will have already been loosed in heaven. It is not that we make some kind of declaration and then heaven gives its rubber stamp to it, but rather... In the will of God, in the power of Christ, in the name of the Lord, when we come together and these are d- decisions are made, led by the leadership of the church, which is what Paul was doing here, the binding and the loosing is really catching up with what God has already decreed from heaven. It has already been done in heaven, now you act in accordance with what God has already done. That takes the means of grace, that takes prayer, that takes the Word, that takes uh, the two to three witnesses. It takes all of these things, but when we do, we can have confidence that we've got the presence of God among us, and so He is approving of the action. If the church is faithful, she's simply going to be following what God has already done. To not follow God is to be in danger of having her lampstand taken away and her light put out. There will always be people in the church that will disagree with the verdict. Including the one disciplined out of the church, they generally always disagree. But there will also likely be others that will disagree, who perhaps may be their friends, or may give some emotional support, or have their biases persuade. But if you, if you ever get into a situation where that becomes you, you need to take a step back and think about this thing from the heavenly perspective. <clears throat> if the church is being faithful and you're disagreeing that it is at the moment, but if they are, and they are acting in correspondence with heaven itself, and then you are the one that is pushing against that, it is the fact that you are going against God Himself. This is a weighty thing. This is why when Peter addresses Ananias and Sapphira, he says, you know, 
you thought you were lying to men, the church. But you, in fact, were lying to the Spirit of God. You were lying to God. This is where Gamaliel's advice is actually quite good when he's exhorting the Sanhedrin, for if this plan or this work is of men, it will come to nothing. But if it is of God, you cannot overthrow it, lest you even be found to fight against God. That's one thing you don't want to do, is you don't want to fight against God. So let me give you some advice. First of all, if you find yourself in a situation where perhaps our church is in a church discipline situation, someone gets excommunicated out, and you find that you're emotionally supporting the one who got excommunicated out, and you are at grievance over uh, the elders who have led the church in this way, first of all, do this. Let your anger settle down and humble yourself and seek the Lord's face. Seek the Lord's face. Second of all, go and talk to the elders and see and hear their side of the story. Though they may not be privy to tell you everything, I think they'll certainly give some insight that perhaps the Lord can use to build your trust. And that really becomes the issue. Are you trusting God Are you trusting His Word? And are you trusting those that God has appointed in that position in this particular situation? Proverbs 18, 17 says, The first one to plead his cause seems right until his neighbor comes and examines him. And how often and how frequently do I hear where there is someone that hears one side of a story, but does not hear the other side of the story, and so quickly jumps on the bandwagon, on the, on the single side of things, when they have not had the privy, nor have they sought to hear the whole story. Oftentimes, elders and pastors hear from both sides of the story, but then have a difficult time convincing those who have already heard the first cause, which seems right, to perhaps back up and think about this thing a little more objectively. So first, let your anger settle down. Humble yourself and seek the Lord. Second of all, go and talk to your elders. And then third, there is a manner of formal appeal. Is there not? We do not hold to an independency of churches, but an interdependency according to how we think that the church is one. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one Lord and God and Father of us all. And we do acknowledge that there are other bodies, and we have a presbytery that this matter can have a formal appeal. But I've even seen churches where they have formally appealed, and that the session or the presbytery has come down in favor of the session, and those are still against the local session and the church body in that action. And there's just no convincing whatsoever. They have not bowed their knee to the Lordship of Christ in His church. They have not honored this very principle that the Bible teaches us. The one thing that the Scriptures do not allow 
is to go around complaining and disagreeing and stirring up strife or unrest in the body over grievances or talking about the manner in such a way that people's heart are turned against their elders. If you do that, you're guilty of another kind of sin that is excommunicable as well, which we'll get to in the future weeks. This is, this is a weighty thing. The fourth thing that I'd like to, for us to understand is something of, of, of a very weighty matter. Children growing up in a family understand if a father is faithful that they get disciplined because if a father loves his child, he will discipline that child. Discipline is unpleasant, but it is necessary. It's part of the training of the child. If we get out of line in our civil magistrate or if we're going 100 miles per hour down the interstate, there's a certain fear that if we get pulled over, there's going to be some repercussions for that. But the church has even weightier and more grave disciplines. And yet it's the one that the people, for the most part, think the lightest of. In verse 5, it says, Deliver such a one over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that the spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. There's a lot of implication gathered in this passage. That's not the only time Paul references turning people over to Satan. The church is a haven from the spiritual deterioration of the world. That is why the church is salt, the church is light among darkness. And there is a protection and a blessing for being a member in good standing in a local church. There is a tremendous blessing beyond what I can articulate and explain. <clears throat> but when one is excommunicated and put out of the church, he is put into the realm where Satan has access. The kingdom of Satan, and he becomes subject to Satan himself. Now the implication in which Paul is, is giving here in the Scriptures... It's not the same kind of relationship to Satan previous to this action or even previous to joining the church. This is where we need to really think about this. Those out in the world today who have, are not in the church, who are unregenerate, are not Christians, are under the deception of the evil one and there is a veil over their heart. They are in the kingdom of darkness which is ruled and governed by Satan. A Christian is one who is not in that world and not of this world, but he is one in the kingdom of God. He is protected from Satan. And while Satan can, can certainly uh, be problematic, he cannot sift us as wheat. He cannot overcome the church. Christ has given a tremendous protection and a haven for every one of the members and for us corporately being in good standing in the church. But here the implication is you have a member that is in the church who then has been excommunicated and he does not go back into merely the status he had 
before he became a Christian in that dark world. It seems to imply even beyond that, that the relationship now is going to be different from even what he was before he came into the church. Something additional is going on here. And the idea is that God is going to turn Satan loose upon the person to deal with him bodily. It's almost as if this is the fourth appeal. Your brother has sinned against you, go to your brother. Between you and him alone, if he hears you, you've won your brother. If he doesn't hear you and repent, then you go and get two others. Two, and in the mouth of two or three witnesses, the, the things will be established. And if he does not hear them, then go and tell it to the church. If he does not tell it to the church, then turn him over to me, God says, I'll deal with him. How? Because I'm going to turn Satan loose on him. That's the fourth, if you will. God is going to go tell it to Satan. That's a place you do not want to be in. Now, the purpose here is restorative. So that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. God is more concerned with the spirit than he is the body. The body is going to die, but the spirit will forever be in existence and will one day be resurrected in a glorious body. And the fruit of the work there that Satan would do, if this man is truly regenerate, will be after he has wreaked havoc in the bodily form, whatever that could mean and what the implications are that this man would repent, return to the church so that his spirit would be saved. Now fortunately, we have the follow-up here in 2 Corinthians. That's exactly what happened to this man. He was broken. He was humbled. He came back to the church. And Paul in his second epistle says, receive this man into the church. It's restorative. Now today, most Christians do not take this serious enough. You know the script, you know the narrative, someone gets involved in a situation, the church starts putting pressure upon that person, church discipline is beginning, and the person usually flees or asks to be removed from the church before things get escalated, and they think they're just leaving the church doing a favor to themselves. I try to warn people about that, don't do that, don't do that, don't do that. People have asked me, look, hey, can you just remove my membership from the role? I said, I certainly can, but it's not good and I don't want to. Can we work through this so that we can provide a proper transfer of membership for your soul's sake? We had disgruntled members who left our church a number of years back. And upon departure, I warned them, I warned them of this very thing. Years had gone by, haven't heard or seen of the people. I get a phone call out of the blue from one of those sobbing over all of the things that I had warned them about coming true. To the extent that they could not even believe the sins that they had committed and were absolutely horrified 
for what has gone on in their life since they left. Shattered. That's what happens out there. I know an elder who left his church and left his wife to pursue other things in life. It took years. Years. He came back a broken, humble man begging for the forgiveness of his wife, his church, and his fellow elders, of which was liberally given But so many of the consequences have taken a toll on the man. His wife had since married, remarried, and he could not go back. His children had suffered tremendously. We take this too lightly. Six, the church, for the sake of Christ and the purity of the church, must remove sin from the body. That's what verses 6 through 8 says. You can't revel in this. You can't glory in this. You ought to mourn in this. This is heavy stuff, but you can't be so emotionally attached to the situation that you cannot do what is right for the honor of Christ. Your glorying is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? And if you allow this sin, which they did, it is like a cancer that begins to eat at the spirit of the entire church and begins to grow with other factions, maybe not of the like cause, but it begins to infect the whole church. We pray for a number of people outside of this ministry this morning who have cancer, and the cancer eats the body up until it kills the body. When you get news that it's cancer. That's one of those kinds of phone calls you don't want to receive because you know your days could be very short-lived and numbered. You have to get that out. You have to get the cancer out with the hope that the body can heal. And here, the Apostle is using the metaphor of leaven because a little leaven eventually left in the lump one leaven and, and, and it will affect the entire lump of bread. Now you have to get that out. Here the application was you get the leaven, the sin out of the camp so that the bread will be pure and unleavened, which bread and leaven we are. It relates that even to the taking of the Passover, which is an identity of the Lord's table. You've got to get the sinner and the wickedness away from the table, away from the body which is called holy. So that the body itself, so while the excommunication is is helpful to bring the sinner back, it is also for the purity of the body of Christ and the honor of God's name. Sin is going to grow if it goes unchecked. That will happen with your children. It will happen in the government. And it will certainly happen in the church. It will have a corrupting influence, and as Paul would then later say in the same epistle, bad company corrupts good morals. The seventh point is the the last one here that I'll cover, and that's the church's response to those who are excommunicated in verses 9 through 11. And he wants them not to even keep company with such a one. 
not to even eat with such a person. We are not to fellowship with them. We're not to even eat with that. And that echoes back to Matthew 18, 17, when it says that if they don't listen to the church, then let them be as a tax collector and a heathen. And he's speaking to a primarily a Gentile audience. Now, how a, I'm sorry, a Jewish audience. Now, how a Jew would think about a tax collector is a traitor and a cheat. How a Jew would think about a Gentile heathen is someone that he did not want to associate with. Now, it's that kind of context. This is not being ugly. This is not being mean. But this is, if you're truly a Christian, we long for community and this unity in this society so much that if you are truly a genuine Christian, the Spirit of God works that into you. You were designed this way from creation. You were made in His image, in the Trinitarian image of this collective kind of people, this covenantal people, not an individualistic. And if you so long for this, it will work its way in you. And if we are to be faithful in doing what God has told us to do, we are not to then join in partaking in their life and fellowship or allowing them into ours until they repent of their sins and come back. And, and that's the whole point. Isn't that what we want? Would we rather fellowship with someone knowing that their soul is going to hell when they die? Or would we rather withhold from a season hoping and praying this will work for the sake of the soul's glory to join you in the singing of praises when we get to glory? Which one is it? I believe that the Scripture here presents three categories of people. I'm going to take an exception to Jay Adams on this particular passage so you can form your opinions there uh, and see how you think about this. When someone is put out of the church, I think Jay Adams' position was you just treat them like an unbeliever at that point. They're just, I, I believe it's different than that. I think there are three categories in which the Scripture is specifically identifying Number one, there's Christians in the church who are still in this protective haven. There are sinners out in the world. And third, there are the unrepentant, excommunicated people. And I think Paul delineates that clearly when he says, I wrote to you on my epistle not to keep company with sexually immoral people. Yet I certainly, verse 10, did not mean with sexually immoral people of this world or with the covetous or extortioners or idolaters, since that means that you would need to go out of the world. What he's saying here is, yeah, Jesus ate with those kinds of people. Jesus ate with you, if you will. We can eat with the unbelievers of the world who do not know Christ for the sake to win them to the Lord. We can be friends with unbelievers in the world to win them to the Lord. We have a completely different relationship with each other here because we are in a bond of love with Christ and it's a bond of covenantal nature of which goes very deep. Very deep. Some of you here sitting next to a pew with someone that you just met in the last year or so are closer to that person than you are to some of your own family members. That's the, the bond of the Christian unity and love that we share here. But when he says this person who was then a Christian is excommunicated out, now he puts a category of how we are to act in response to them that is different 
in how we respond to each other. It's different from how we are to respond to those sinners out in the world. It is one that we don't even fellowship or eat with such a person. I think those are three categories. Two of those three categories we can eat and associate with to some degree. Sinners who are still in the world and Christians in a deeper way. But unrepentant excommunicates, the church is not to even eat with such a one. I don't believe that is merely talking about the Lord's table. I think that actually is an expression that goes beyond that. I think the context would be very clear on that as it even pertains to believers, um, unbelievers there. So he goes on, do you not judge those who are in the church? The answer, the way he's asking the questions implies yes, yes we do. So therefore, remove the wicked man from out from your midst. That, that's where he's driving at. And the purpose was to reaffirm love to this person in order to be restored. The purpose is remedial, not punitive. And it's really important for all churches to understand what does repentance look like. Churches I've seen have excommunicated, excommunicated people out of the church but they don't know or have a path for a restoration back into the church. They see it almost as like a final end of all things, and yet, when you excommunicate somebody out, you need to know what true repentance looks like coming back so you can acknowledge that, and then you can embrace them showing that yes, So one category where the church is expected to exercise church discipline that we've covered this morning is in these cases of gross immoral behavior. It's not just the immorality that Paul is speaking of here, but includes idolatry and covetousness and drunkenness and being a reviler and, and those other sins and those like it that will end up causing divisions within the body, but it's just an outright uh, blatant sin in the eyes of God, and it's clear. It's clear. And the last thing I'd like to suggest, which is implied in the text, the whole church must be in agreement with the discipline, and they need to carry it out in unity. The everybody's got to be on board does not mean everybody has to agree. It means everybody has to be on board and be unified in that. And to be doing so in a manner that they are not then spreading the cancerous divisions in the church because then they are going to be subject to the same kind of action. We have to be in unity. And those who will not be subject to the body in carrying out this unity put themselves in danger of church discipline. That would be Jay Adams' position as well as mine. And this is why leadership is necessary to lead the church down this path in maintaining unity in the midst of a situation where Satan is very close at hand and can oftentimes disturb the unity of the church. I've always said that church discipline cases are always a playground for Satan. He's always going around, and while the church has to practice it, he's looking for the chink in the armor. He's looking for that mistake so he can get his foot in the door and begin to make havoc of the church. And that usually gets the foot in the door with a weak link of somebody that's in disagreement and disgruntled that's going to bring a big problem over the situation. So it's, all, it's important for us all to be on the same page. To be led by the leadership 
all in unity, walking down the same path for the sake of the soul of the person that is put out of the church. This is a very difficult thing. You look around here. Can you imagine by putting a name and a face to any one of us in the membership of Heritage being excommunicated out of this body? That would be a very hard thing for all of us. But we're going to have to be faithful should that ever come to us to happen. And that's why in most cases, in church discipline cases where churches practice this, they will lose members not just the ones who are disciplined, that they're going to lose members because of their disagreement. It's a sad thing to see. There are ways around which that should not happen. But Christ does not make this optional. As difficult as this message has been, as this passage is, He expects us all to be unified in His action. All to catch up with what heaven has already decreed. And that is why... It is assumed in Matthew 18 and the Apostles' exhortation to the church in this passage that this must happen. This is to happen. And this is something that we need to take seriously and not marginalize. If Heritage will be a pure church in a hundred years, It will be that by the grace of God in the means of that grace. And I dare say it will require church discipline probably on multiple occasions to happen. We have to trust Christ in these difficult things. And as Matthew 18 expresses, you remember where he starts? The apostles are saying, who is the greatest in the kingdom? And Jesus says, first of all, you've got to be like a child to even get in. Second of all, to be great, you're going to have to maintain that humility as a child as it relates to others. Third, you're going to have to, to practice this kind of confrontation with brothers in which you have an offense between you that's causing a disturbance. And third, you're going to have to be a very forgiving person. And that's the whole chapter of 18 and His answer to the disciples how to be a great Christian. And so I hope that we can take this to heart and be faithful to God with what He's called us to do, corporately and even individually. Amen. Our gracious Father, we pray that You would empower us with the Spirit of God that should we and when we have to face this difficult thing with church discipline, that we would all walk together in unity in the power of the Spirit as even the table is fenced each Lord's Day as evidence of this, we pray for Your blessing upon the leadership with wisdom and to walk faithfully in the Lord. And we pray that this church will be united together around these things and that we can be faithful to our God, faithful to Christ who leads us as our head. And we pray all these things in His blessed name. Amen.